Sections 9 through 27 of The Bondage of the Will by Martin Luther. Translated by Henry Cole. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Sovereignty of God. Section 9. This, therefore, is also essentially necessary and wholesome for Christians to know, that God foreknows nothing by contingency, but that He foresees, purposes, and does all things according to His immutable, eternal, and infallible will. By this thunderbolt, free will is thrown prostrate and utterly dashed to pieces. Those, therefore, who would assert free will must either deny this thunderbolt, or pretend not to see it, or push it from them. But, however, before I establish this point by any arguments of my own, and by the authority of Scripture, I will first set it forth in your words. Are you not, then, the person, friend Erasmus, who just now asserted that God is by nature just, and by nature most merciful? If this be true, does it not follow that He is immutably just and merciful? That, as His nature is not changed to all eternity, so neither His justice nor His mercy. And what is said concerning His justice and His mercy must be said also concerning His knowledge, His wisdom, His goodness, His will, and His other attributes. If, therefore, these things are asserted religiously, piously, and wholesomely concerning God, as you say yourself, what has come to you that, contrary to your own self, you now assert that it is irreligious, curious, and vain to say that God foreknows of necessity? You openly declare that the immutable will of God is to be known, but you forbid that the knowledge of His immutable prescience. Do you believe that He foreknows against His will, or that He wills in ignorance? If, then, He foreknows willing, His will is eternal and immovable, because His nature is so. And, if He wills foreknowing, His knowledge is eternal and immovable, because His nature is so. From which it follows unalterably that all things which we do, although they may appear to us to be done mutably and contingently, and even may be done thus contingently by us, are yet in reality done necessarily and immutably with respect to the will of God. For the will of God is effective and cannot be hindered, because the very power of God is natural to Him, and His wisdom is such that He cannot be deceived. And as His will cannot be hindered, the work itself cannot be hindered from being done in the place, at the time, in the measure, and by whom He foresees and wills. If the will of God were such that, when the work was done, the work remained, but the will ceased, as is the case with the will of men, which, when the house is built which they wished to build, ceases to will, as though it ended by death. Then, indeed, it might be said that things are done by contingency and mutability. But here the case is the contrary. The work ceases and the will remains. So far is it from possibility that the doing of the work or its remaining can be said to be from contingency or mutability. But, that we may not be deceived in terms, being done by contingency does not, in the Latin language, signify that the work itself which is done is contingent, but that it is done according to a contingent and mutable will, such a will as is not to be found in God. Moreover, a work cannot be called contingent unless it be done by us unawares, by contingency, and, as it were, by chance, that is, by our will or hand catching at it, as presented by chance, we thinking nothing of it, nor willing anything about it before. Section 10. 
I could wish indeed that we were furnished with some better term for this discussion than this commonly used term, necessity, which cannot rightly be used either with reference to the human will or the divine. It is of a signification too harsh and ill-suited for this subject, forcing upon the mind an idea of compulsion, and that which is altogether contrary to will, whereas the subject which we are discussing does not require such an idea. For will, whether divine or human, does what it does, be it good or evil, not by any compulsion, but by mere willingness or desire, as it were, totally free. The will of God, nevertheless, which rules over our mutable will, is immutable and infallible, as Boetius sings, Immovable thyself, thou movement givest to all. And our own will, especially our corrupt will, cannot of itself do good. Therefore, where the term fails to express the idea required, the understanding of the reader must make up the deficiency, knowing what is wished to be expressed, the immutable will of God, and the impotency of our own depraved will, or, as some have expressed it, the necessity of immutability, though neither is that sufficiently grammatical or sufficiently theological. Upon this point the sophists have now labored hard for many years, and being at last conquered have been compelled to retreat. All things take place from the necessity of the consequence, say they, but not from the necessity of the thing consequent. What nothingness this amounts to I will not take the trouble to show. By the necessity of the consequence, to give a general idea of it, they mean this. If God wills anything, that same thing must, of necessity, be done. But it is not necessary that the thing done should be necessary. For God alone is necessary. All other things cannot be so, if it is God that wills. Therefore, say they, the action of God is necessary where he wills, but the act itself is not necessary. That is, they mean, it has not essential necessity. But what do they affect by this plain upon words? Only this, that the act itself is not necessary, that is, it has not essential necessity. This is no more than saying, the act is not God himself. This nevertheless remains certain, that if the action of God is necessary, or if there is a necessity of the consequence, everything takes place of necessity, how much soever the act be not necessary, that is, be not God himself, or have not essential necessity. For if I be not made of necessity, it is of little moment with me, whether my existence in being be mutable or not. If, nevertheless, I, that contingent and mutable being, who am not the necessary God, am made. Wherefore their ridiculous play upon words, that all things take place from the necessity of the consequence, but not from the necessity of the thing consequent, amounts to nothing more than this. All things take place of necessity, but all the things that do take place are not God himself. But what need was there to tell us this? as though there were any fear of our asserting that the things done were God himself, or possessed divine or necessary nature. This asserted truth, therefore, stands and remains invincible, that all things take place according to the immutable will of God, which they call the necessity of the consequence. Nor is there here any obscurity or ambiguity. In Isaiah he saith, My counsel shall stand, and my will shall be done. Isaiah 46.10. And what schoolboy does not understand the meaning of these expressions? Counsel, will, shall be done, shall stand. Section 11. But why should these things be abstruse to us Christians, 
so that it should be considered irreligious, curious, and vain to discuss and know them when heathen poets and the very commonalty have them in their mouths in the most frequent use. How often does Virgil alone make mention of fate? All things stand fixed by law immutable. Again, fixed is the day of every man. Again, if the fates summon you. And again, if thou shalt break the binding chain of fate. All this poet aims at is to show that in the destruction of Troy, and in raising the Roman Empire, fate did more than all the devoted efforts of men. In a word, he makes even their immortal gods subject to fate. To this even Jupiter and Juno must of necessity yield. Hence they made the three parci immutable, implacable, and irrevocable in degree. Those men of wisdom knew that which the event itself with experience proves, that no man's own counsels ever succeeded, but that the event happened to all, contrary to what they thought. Virgil's Hector says, Could Troy have stood by human arm, it should have stood by mine. Hence that common saying was on everyone's tongue, God's will be done. Again, if God will, we will do it. Again, such was the will of God. Such was the will of those above. Such was your will, says Virgil. Whence we may see that the knowledge of predestination and of the prescience of God was no less left in the world than the notion of the divinity itself. And those who wished to appear wise went in their disputations so far that their hearts being darkened they became fools, Romans 1, 21-22, and denied or pretended not to know those things which their poets and the commonalty and even their own consciences held to be universally known, most certain and most true. Section 12. I observe further, not only how true these things are, concerning which I shall speak more at large hereafter, out of the Scriptures, but also how religious, pious, and necessary it is to know them. For if these things be not known, there can be neither faith nor any worship of God. Nay, not to know them is to be in reality ignorant of God, with which ignorance salvation, it is well known, cannot consist. For if you doubt or disdain to know that God foreknows and wills all things, not contingently, but necessarily and immutably, how can you believe confidently, trust to, and depend upon his promises? For when he promises, it is necessary that you should be certain that he knows, is able, and willing to perform what he promises. Otherwise, you will neither hold him true nor faithful, which is unbelief, the greatest of wickedness, and a denying of the Most High God. And how can you be certain and secure unless you are persuaded that he knows and wills certainly, infallibly, immutably, and necessarily, and will perform what he promises? Nor ought we to be certain only that God wills necessarily and immutably, and will perform, but also to glory in the same, as Paul, Romans 3, 4, Let God be true, but every man a liar. And again, For the word of God is not without effect, Romans 6, 9. And in another place, the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal, the Lord knoweth them that are his. 2 Timothy 2.19 And which God that cannot lie promised before the world began. Titus 1.2 And he that cometh must believe that God is, and that he is a rewarder of them that hope in him. Hebrews 11.6 If therefore we are taught, and if we believe, that we ought not to know the necessary prescience of God, and the necessity of the things that are to take place, Christian faith is utterly destroyed, and the promises of God and the whole gospel entirely fall to the ground. 
For the greatest and only consolation of Christians in their adversities is the knowing that God lies not, but does all things immutably, and that His will cannot be resisted, changed, or hindered. Section 13. Do you now, then, only observe, friend Erasmus, to what that most moderate and most peace-loving theology of yours would lead us? You call us off, and forbid our endeavouring to know the prescience of God, and the necessity that lies on men and things, and counsel us to leave such things, and to avoid and disregard them. And in so doing you at the same time teach us your rash sentiments, that we should seek after an ignorance of God, which comes upon us of its own accord, and is engendered in us. Disregard faith, leave the promises of God, and account the consolations of the Spirit and the assurances of conscience nothing at all. Such counsel scarcely any epicure himself would give. Moreover, not content with this, you call him who should desire to know such things irreligious, curious, and vain, but him who should disregard them religious, pious, and sober. What else do these words imply? than that Christians are irreligious, curious, and vain, and that Christianity is a thing of naught, vain, foolish, and plainly impious. Here again, therefore, while you wish by all means to deter us from temerity, running, as fools always do, directly into the contrary, you teach nothing but the greatest temerity, impiety, and perdition. Do you not see, then, that in this part your book is so impious, blasphemous, and sacrilegious, that its like is not anywhere to be found? I do not, as I have observed before, speak of your heart, nor can I think that you are so lost that from your heart you wish these things to be taught and practiced. But I would show you what enormities that man must be compelled unknowingly to broach who undertakes to support a bad cause, and, moreover, what it is to run against divine things and truths, when, in mere compliance with others and against our own conscience, we assume a strange character and act upon a strange stage. It is neither a game nor a jest to undertake to teach the sacred truths and godliness. For it is very easy here to meet with that fall which James speaks of. He that offendeth in one point is guilty of all. James 2.10 For when we begin to be in the least degree disposed to trifle, and not to hold the sacred truths in due reverence, we are soon involved in impieties and overwhelmed with blasphemies, as it has happened to you here, Erasmus. May the Lord pardon and have mercy upon you. That the sophists have given birth to such numbers of reasoning questions upon these subjects, and have intermingled with them many unprofitable things, many of which you mention, I know and confess, as well as you. And I have inveighed against them much more than you have but you act with imprudence and rashness when you liken the purity of the sacred truths unto the profane and foolish questions of the impious, and mingle and confound it with them. They have defiled the gold with dung, and changed the good color. Lamentations 4.1, as Jeremiah saith. But the gold is not to be compared unto and cast away with the dung as you do it. The gold must be wrested from them, and the pure scripture separated from their dregs and filth which it has ever been my aim to do, that the divine truths may be looked upon in one light, and the trifles of these men in another. But it ought not to be considered of any service to us that nothing has been affected by these questions, but their causing us to favor them less with the whole current of our approbation, if, nevertheless, we still desire to be wiser than we ought. The question with us is not how much the sophists have effected by their reasonings, but how we may become good men and Christians. 
nor ought you to impute it to the Christian doctrine that the impious do evil. That is nothing to the purpose. You may speak of that somewhere else, and spare your paper here. Section 14. Under your third head, you attempt to make us some of those very modest and quiet Epicureans, with a different kind of advice indeed, but no better than that with which the two forementioned particulars are brought forward. Some things, you say, are of that nature that, although they are true in themselves and might be known, yet it would not be prudent to prostitute them to the ears of every one. Here again, according to your custom, you mingle and confound everything, to bring the sacred things down to a level with the profane, without making any distinction whatever, again falling into the contempt of and doing an injury to God. As I have said before, those things which are either found in the sacred writings, or may be proved by them, are not only plain, but wholesome, and therefore may be, nay, ought to be, spread abroad, learnt, and known, so that your saying that they ought not to be prostituted to the ears of every one is false, if, that is, you speak of those things which are in the Scripture. But if you speak of any other things, they are nothing to me, and nothing to the purpose. You lose time and paper in saying anything about them. Moreover, you know that I agree not with the sophists in anything. You may therefore spare me, and not bring me in at all as connected with their abuse of the truth. You had in this book of yours to speak against me. I know where the sophists are wrong, nor do I want you for my instructor, and they have been sufficiently inveighed against by me. This, therefore, I wish to be observed once for all, whenever you shall bring me in with the sophists, and disparage my side of the subject by their madness for you do me an injury, and that you know very well. Section 15. Now let us see your reasons for giving this advice. You think that, although it may be true that God from his nature is in a beetle's hole, or even in a sink, which you have too much holy reverence to say yourself, and blame the sophist for talking in such a way, no less than in heaven, yet it would be unreasonable to discuss such a subject before the multitude. First of all, let them talk thus who can talk thus. We do not here argue concerning what are facts in men, but concerning justice and law. Not that we may live, but that we may live as we ought. Who among us lives and acts rightly? But justice and the doctrine of law are not therefore condemned, but rather they condemn us. You fetch from afar these irrelevant things, and scrape together many such from all quarters, because you cannot get over this one point prescience of God, and since you cannot overthrow it in any way, you want in the meantime to tire out the reader with a multiplicity of empty observation. But of this no more. Let us return to the point. What then is your intention in observing that there are some things which ought not to be spoken of openly? Do you mean to enumerate the subject of free will among those things? If you do, the whole that I have just said concerning the necessity of knowing what free will is will turn round upon you. Moreover, if so, why do you not keep your own principles and have nothing to do with your diatribe? But if you do well in discussing free will, why do you speak against such discussion? And if it is a bad subject, why do you make it worse? But if you do not enumerate it among those things, then you leave your subject point, and, like an orator of words only, talk about those irrelevant things that have nothing to do with the subject. Section 16. Nor are you right in the use of this example, nor in condemning the discussion of this subject before the multitude as useless, 
that God is in a beetle's hole and even in a sink. For your thoughts concerning God are too human. I confess indeed that there are certain fantastical preachers who, not from any religion or fear of God, but from a desire of vain glory, or from a thirst after some novelty, or from impatience of silence, prate and trifle in the lightest manner. But such please neither God nor men, although they assert that God is in the heaven of heavens. But when there are grave and pious preachers, who teach in modest, pure, and sound words, they without any danger, nay, unto much profit, speak on such a subject before the multitude. Is it not the duty of us all to teach that the Son of God was in the womb of the Virgin, and proceeded forth from her belly? And in what does the human belly differ from any other unclean place? Who, moreover, may not describe it in filthy and shameless terms? But such persons we justly condemn, because there are numberless pure words in which we speak of that necessary subject, even with decency and grace. The body also of Christ himself was human, like ours. Then which body, what is more filthy? But shall we therefore not say what Paul saith, that God dwelt in it bodily? Colossians 2.9. What is more unclean than death? What more horrible than hell? Yet the prophet glorieth that God was with him in death, and left him not in hell. Psalm 16.10. Psalm 139.8. The pious mind, therefore, is not shocked at hearing that God was in death and in hell, each of which is more horrible and more loathsome than either a hole or a sink. Nay, since the Scripture testifies that God is everywhere and fills all things, such a mind not only says that he is in those places, but will of necessity learn and know that he is there. Unless we are to suppose that if at any time we should be taken and cast into a prison or a sink, which has happened to many saints, I could not there call upon God, or believe that he was present with me, until I should come into some ornamented church. If you teach us that we are thus to trifle concerning God, and if you are thus offended at the places of his essential presence, by and by you will not even allow that he dwells with us in heaven, whereas the heaven of heavens cannot contain him, 1 Kings 8.27, or they are not worthy. But as I said before, you, according to your custom, thus maliciously point your sting at our cause, that you may disparage and render it hateful, because you find it stands against you insuperable and invincible. Section 17. In the example concerning confession and satisfaction, it is wonderful to observe with what dexterous prudence you proceed. Throughout the whole, according to your custom, you move along on the tiptoe of caution, lest you should seem neither plainly to condemn my sentiments nor to oppose the tyranny of the popes, a path which you found to be by no means safe. Therefore, throwing off in this matter both God and conscience, for what are these things to Erasmus? What has he to do with them? What profit are they to him? You rush upon the external bugbear, and attack the commonalty, that they from their depravity abuse the preaching of a free confession and of satisfaction to an occasion of the flesh. But nevertheless, you say, by the necessity of confessing, they are in a measure restrained. O oh, memorable and excellent speech! Is this teaching theology, to bind souls by laws, and, as Ezekiel saith, 13.18, to hunt them to death which are not bound by God? Why, by this speech you bring upon us the universal tyranny of the laws of the popes, as useful and wholesome, because that by them also the depravity of the commonalty is restrained. But I will not inveigh against this place as it deserves. I will descant upon it thus briefly. A good theologian teaches 
that the commonalty are to be restrained by the external power of the sword, where they do evil, as Paul teaches, Romans 13, 1-4. But their consciences are not to be fettered by false laws, that they might be tormented with sins where God wills there should be no sins at all. For consciences are bound by the law of God only, so that that intermediate tyranny of popes, which falsely terrifies and murders the souls within, and vainly wearies the bodies without, is to be taken entirely out of the way. Because, although it binds to confession and other things outwardly, yet the mind is not by these things restrained, but exasperated the more into the hatred both of God and men. And in vain does it butcher the body by external things, making nothing but hypocrites, so that tyrants with laws of this kind are nothing else but ravening wolves, robbers, and plunderers of souls. And yet you, an excellent counsellor of souls, recommend these to us again, that is, you are an advocate for these most barbarous soul-murderers, who fill the world with hypocrites, and with such as blaspheme God and hate Him in their hearts, in order that they may restrain them a little from outward sin, as though there were no other way of restraining, which makes no hypocrites, and is wrought without any destroying of consciences. Section 18. Here you produce similitudes, in which you aim at appearing to abound, and, and to use very appropriately. That is, that there are diseases which may be borne with less evil than they can be cured, as the leprosy and so forth. You add, moreover, the example of Paul, who makes a distinction between those things that are lawful and those things that are not expedient. It is lawful, you say, to speak the truth, but before every one, at all times, and in every way, it is not expedient. How copious an orator! And yet you understand nothing of what you are saying. In a word, you treat this discussion as though it were some matter between you and me only, about the recovering of some money that was at stake, or some other trivial thing, the loss of which, as being of much less consideration than the general peace of the community, ought not so to concern any one, but that he may yield act and suffer upon the occasion in any way that may prevent the necessity of the world being thrown into a tumult wherein you plainly evince that this peace and tranquillity of the flesh are with you a matter of far greater consideration than faith than conscience than salvation than the word of god than the glory of christ than god himself wherefore let me tell you this and i entreat you to let it sink deep into your mind I am in this discussion seeking an object solemn and essential, nay, such and so great that it ought to be maintained and defended through death itself, and that, although the whole world should not only be thrown into tumult and set in arms thereby, but even if it should be hurled into chaos and reduced to nothing, if you cannot receive this, or if you are not affected by it, do you mind your own business and allow us to receive it and to be affected by it to whom it is given of God. For by the grace of God I am not so great a fool or madman as to have desired to sustain and defend this cause so long, with so much fortitude and so much firmness, which you call obstinacy, in the face of so many dangers of my life, so much hatred, so many traps laid for me. In a word, in the face of the fury of men and devils, I have not done this for money, for that I neither have nor desire, nor for vainglory, for that, if I wished, I could not obtain in a world so enraged against me, nor for the life for my body, for that cannot be made sure of for an hour. Do you think, then, that you only have a heart that is moved by these tumults? Yet I am not made of stone, nor was I born from the Marpesian rocks. 
but since it cannot be otherwise, I choose rather to be battered in temporal tumult, happy in the grace of God, for God's word's sake, which is to be maintained with a mind incorrupt and invincible, than to be ground to powder in external tumult, under the wrath of God and torments intolerable. May Christ grant what I desire and hope, that your heart may not be such, but certainly your words imply, that with Epicurus you consider the word of God and a future life to be mere fables. For in your instructions you would have us for the sake of the popes, the heads, and the peace of the community, to put off upon an occasion and depart from the all-certain word of God. Whereas if we put off that, we put off God, faith, salvation, and all Christianity together. How far different from this is the instruction of Christ, that we should rather despise the whole world. Section 19. But you say these things because you either do not read or do not observe that such is most constantly the case with the word of God, that because of it the world is thrown into tumult, and that Christ openly declares, I came not, says he, to send peace but a sword. Matthew 10.34. And in Luke, I came to send fire upon the earth. Luke 12.49. And Paul, Second Corinthians 6.5, in tumults, and so forth. And the prophet in the second psalm abundantly testifies the same, declaring that the nations are in tumult, the people roaring, the kings rising up, and the princes conspiring against the Lord and against his Christ, as though he had said, Multitude, height, wealth, power, wisdom, righteousness, and whatever is great in the world sets itself against the word of God. Look into the Acts of the Apostles and see what happened in the world on account of the word of Paul only, to say nothing of the other apostles. How he alone throws both the Gentiles and Jews into commotion, or, as the enemies themselves express it, turn the world upside down. Acts 17.6 Under Elijah the kingdom of Israel was thrown into commotion, as King Ahab complains. 1 Kings 18.17 What tumult was there under the other prophets? while they are all either killed at once or stoned to death, while Israel is taken captive into Assyria, and Judah also to Babylon. Was all this peace? The world and its God, Second Corinthians 4.4, 4, cannot and will not bear the word of the true God, and the true God cannot and will not keep silence. While therefore these two gods are at war with each other, what can there be else in the whole world but tumult? Therefore, to wish to silence these tumults is nothing else than to wish to hinder the word of God, and to take it out of the way. For the word of God, wherever it comes, comes to change and to renew the world. And even heathen writers testify that changes of things cannot take place without commotion and tumult, nor even without blood. It therefore belongs to Christians to expect and endure these things with a staid mind, as Christ says, when ye shall hear of wars and rumors of wars, be not dismayed, for these things must first come to pass, but the end is not yet. Matthew 24, 6 And as to myself, if I did not see these tumults, I should say the word of God was not in the world. But now when I do see them, I rejoice from my heart, and fear them not, being surely persuaded that the kingdom of the Pope, with all his followers, will fall to the ground for it is especially against this that the word of God which now runs is directed. I see indeed, my friend Erasmus, that you complain in many books of these tumults, and of the loss of peace and concord. 
and you attempt many means whereby to afford a remedy, and, as I am inclined to believe, with a good intention. But this gouty foot laughs at your doctoring hands. For here, in truth, as you say, you sail against the tide. Nay, you put out fire with straw. Cease from complaining, cease from doctoring. This tumult proceeds, and is carried on from above, and will not cease until it shall make all the adversaries of the word as the dirt of the streets. Though I am sorry that I find it necessary to teach you, so great a theologian, these things like a disciple, when you ought to be a teacher of others. Your excellent sentiment, then, that some diseases may be born with less evil than they can be cured, applies here. Which sentiment you do not appositely use? Rather call these tumults, commotions, perturbations, seditions, discords, wars, and all other things of the same kind with which the world is shaken and tossed to and fro on account of the word of God, the diseases. These things, I say, as they are temporal, are born with less evil than inveterate and evil habits, by which all souls must be destroyed if they be not changed by the word of God, which, being taken away, eternal good, God, Christ, and the Spirit must be taken with it. But how much better it is to lose the whole world than to lose God, the Creator of the world, who can create innumerable worlds again, and is better than infinite worlds. For what are temporal things when compared with eternal? This leprosy of temporal things, therefore, is rather to be borne than that every soul should be destroyed and eternally damned, and the world kept in peace and preserved from these tumults by their blood and perdition whereas one soul cannot be redeemed with the price of the whole world. You certainly have command of elegant and excellent similitudes and sentiments, but when you are engaged in sacred discussions, you apply them childishly, nay, pervertedly, for you crawl upon the ground and enter in thought into nothing above what is human, whereas those things which God works are neither puerile, civil, nor human, but divine, and they exceed human capacity. Thus you do not see that these tumults and divisions increase throughout the world according to the counsel and by the operation of God, and therefore you fear lest heaven should tumble about our ears. But I, by the grace of God, see these things clearly, because I see other tumults greater than these that will arise in the age to come, in comparison of which these appear but as the whispering of a breath of air, or the murmuring of a gentle brook. Section 20 but the doctrine concerning the liberty of confession and satisfaction, you either deny or know not that there is a word of God. And here arises another inquiry. But we know and are persuaded that there is a word of God in which the Christian liberty is asserted, that we might not suffer ourselves to be ensnared into bondage by human traditions and laws. This I have abundantly shown elsewhere. But if you wish to enter the lists, I am prepared to discuss the point with you, and to fight it out though upon these subjects I have books extant, not a few. But the laws of the popes, you say, may at the same time be born with and observed in charity. If perchance thus eternal salvation by the word of God and the peace of the world may together consist without tumult. I have said before, that cannot be. The prince of this world will not allow the pope and his high priests and their laws to be observed in liberty, but his design is to entangle and bind consciences. This the true God will not bear. Therefore the word of God and the traditions of men are opposed to each other with implacable discord, no less so than God himself and Satan, 
who each destroy the works and overthrow the doctrines of the other, as regal kings each destroying the kingdom of the other. He that is not with me, saith Christ, is against me. Luke 11.23 And as to a fear that many who are depravedly inclined will abuse this liberty, this must be considered among those tumults as part of that temporal leprosy which is to be borne, and of that evil which is to be endured. But these are not to be considered of so much consequence as that, for the sake of restraining their abuse, the word of God should be taken out of the way. For if all cannot be saved, yet some are saved. For whose sake the word of God is sent, and these on that account love it the more fervently, and assent to it the more solemnly. For what evils did not impious men commit before, where there was no word? Nay, what good did they do? Was not the world always drowned in war, fraud, violence, discord, and every kind of iniquity? For if Micah 7.4 compares the best among them to a thorn hedge, what do you suppose he would call the rest? But now the gospel is come, men begin to impute unto it that the world is evil whereas the truth is that by the good gospel it is more manifest how evil it was, while without the gospel it did all its works in darkness. Thus also the illiterate attribute it to learning that by its flourishing their ignorance becomes known. This is the return we make for the word of life and salvation. And what fear must we suppose there was among the Jews when the gospel freed all from the law of Moses? What occasion did not this great liberty seem to give to evil men? But yet the gospel was not on that account taken away. But the impious were left, and it was preached to the pious that they might not use their liberty as an occasion of the flesh. Galatians 5.13 Section 21 Nor is this part of your advice or your remedy to any purpose where you say, It is lawful to speak the truth, but it is not expedient, either before every one or at all times, or in every manner. And ridiculously enough, you add Paul, where he says, All things are lawful to me, but all things are not expedient. 1 Corinthians 6.12 But Paul does not there speak of teaching doctrine, or the truth, as you would confound his words and twist them which way you please. On the contrary, he will have the truth spoken everywhere, at all times, and in every manner so that he even rejoices that Christ is preached even through envy and strife. Nay, he declares in plain words that he rejoices, Let Christ be preached in any way. Philippians 1, 15-18 Paul is speaking of facts and the use of doctrine, that is, of those who, seeking their own, had no consideration of the hurt and offense given to the weak. Truth and doctrine are to be preached always, openly and firmly, and are never to be dissembled or concealed for there is no offense in them. They are the staff of uprightness. And who gave you the power, or committed to you the right of confining the Christian doctrine to persons, places, times, and causes, when Christ wills it to be proclaimed, and to reign freely throughout the world? For Paul saith, The word of God is not bound, 2 Timothy 2.9, but Erasmus bounds the word. Nor did God give us the word that it should be had with respect of places, persons, or times. For Christ saith, Go ye out into the whole world. He does not say, as Erasmus does, Go to this place and not to that. Again, preach the gospel to every creature. Mark 16.15 He does not say, Preach it to some and not to others. 
In a word, you enjoin in the administration of the word of God a respect of persons, a respect of places, a respect of customs, and a respect of times, whereas the one and especial part of the glory of the word consists in this, that, as Paul saith, there is with it no respect of persons, and that God is no respecter of persons. You see, therefore, again, how rashly you run against the word of God, as though you preferred far before it your own counsel and cogitations. Hence, if we should demand of you that you would determine for us the times in which, the persons to whom, and the manner in which the truth is to be spoken, when would you come to an end? The world would sooner compute the termination of time and its own end than you would settle upon any one certain rule. In the meantime, where would remain the duty of teaching? Where that of teaching the soul? And how could you, who know nothing of the nature of persons, times, and manner, determine upon any rule at all? And even if you should know them perfectly, yet you could not know the hearts of men. Unless with you the manner, the time, and the person be this, teaching the truth so that the Pope be not indignant, Caesar be not enraged, and that many be not offended and made worse. But what kind of counsel this is you have seen above. I have thus rhetorically figured away in these vain words, lest you should appear to have said nothing at all. How much better is it for us wretched men to ascribe unto God, who knoweth the hearts of all men, the glory of determining the manner in which the persons to whom, and the times in which the truth is to be spoken. For he knows what is to be spoken to each, and when, and how it is to be spoken. He then determines that his gospel, which is necessary unto all, should be confined to no place, no time, but that it should be preached unto all, at all times, and in all places. And I have already proved that those things which are handed down to us in the Scriptures are such that they are quite plain and wholesome, and of necessity to be proclaimed abroad, even as you yourself determined in your periclesis was right to be done, and that with much more wisdom than you advise now. But let those who would not that souls should be redeemed, such as the Pope and his adherents, let it be left to them to bind the word of God, and hinder men from life and the kingdom of heaven, that they might neither enter in themselves nor suffer others to enter, to whose fury you, Erasmus, by this advice of yours, are perniciously subservient. Section 22. Of the same stamp with this is that prudence of yours also, with which you next give it as your advice, that if anything were settled upon in the councils that was wrong, it ought not to be openly confessed, lest a handle should be thereby afforded for contemning the authority of the fathers. This, indeed, is just what the Pope wished you to say, and he hears it with greater pleasure than the gospel itself, and will be a most ungrateful wretch if he do not honor you in return with a cardinal's cap, together with all the revenues belonging to it. But in the meantime, friend Erasmus, what will the souls do that shall be bound and murdered by that iniquitous statute? Is that nothing to you? But however you always think, or pretend to think, that human statutes can be observed together with the word of God without peril, if they could, I would at once go over to this your sentiment. But if you are yet in ignorance, I will tell you again that human statutes cannot be observed together with the word of God, because the former bind consciences, the latter looses them. They are directly opposed to each other as fire to water, unless indeed they could be observed in liberty, 
that is, not to bind the conscience. But this the Pope wills not, nor can he will it, unless he wishes his kingdom to be destroyed and brought to an end. For that stands only in ensnaring and binding those consciences which the gospel pronounces free. The authority of the fathers, therefore, is to be accounted naught, and those statutes which have been wrongly enacted, as all have been that are not according to the word of God, are to be rent in sunder and cast away, for Christ is better than the authority of the fathers. In a word, if it be concerning the word of God that you think thus, you think impiously. If it be concerning other things, your verbose disputing about your sentiment is nothing to me. I am disputing concerning the word of God. Section 23. In the last part of your preface, where you deter us from this kind of doctrine, you think your victory is almost gained. What you say can be more useless than that this paradox should be proclaimed openly to the world, that whatever is done by us is not done by free will, but from mere necessity. And that of Augustine also, that God works in us both good and evil, that he rewards his good works in us, and punishes his evil works in us. You are mightily copious here in giving, or rather in expostulating concerning a reason. What a floodgate of iniquity, you say, would these things, publicly proclaimed, open unto men? What bad man would amend his life? Who would believe that he was loved of God? Who would war against his flesh? I wonder that in so great vehemency and contending zeal you did not remember our main subject, and say, Where then would be found free will? My friend Erasmus, here again I also say, if you consider that these paradoxes are the inventions of men, why do you contend against them? Why are you so enraged? Against whom do you rail? Is there any man in the world at this day who has inveighed more vehemently against the doctrines of men than Luther? This admonition of yours, therefore, is nothing to me. But if you believe that those paradoxes are the words of God, where is your countenance, where is your shame, where is, I will not say, your modesty, but that fear of, and that reverence which is due to the true God, when you say that nothing is more useless to be proclaimed than that word of God? What, shall your Creator come to learn of you, his creature, what is useful, and what is not useful to be preached? What, did that foolish and unwise God know not what is necessary to be taught until you, his instructor, prescribed to him the measure, according to which he should be wise, and according to which he should command? What, did he not know before you told him that that which you infer would be the consequence of this his paradox? If, therefore, God willed that such things should be spoken of and proclaimed abroad without regard to what would follow, who art thou that forbiddest it? The Apostle Paul, in his Epistle to the Romans, discourses on these same things, not in a corner, but in public, and before the whole world, and that with a freely open mouth, nay, in the harshest terms, saying, Whom he will he hardeneth, Romans 9.18. And again, God willing to show forth his wrath, and so forth, Romans 9.22. What is more severe, that is, to the flesh, than the word of Christ? Many are called, but few chosen, Matthew 22.14. And again, I know whom I have chosen, John 13.18. According to your judgment, then, all these things are such that nothing can be more uselessly spoken, because that by these things impious men may fall into desperation, hatred, and blasphemy. Here, then, I see, 
you suppose that the truth and the utility of the scripture are to be weighed and judged of according to the opinion of men nay of men the most impious so that what pleases them or seems bearable should be deemed true divine and wholesome and what has the contrary effect upon them should at once be deemed useless false and pernicious what else do you mean by all this than that the words of god should depend on stand on and fall by the will and authority of men whereas the scripture on the contrary saith that all things stand and fall by the will and authority of god and in a word that all the earth keeps silence before the face of the lord habakkuk two twenty he who could talk as you do must imagine that the living god is on a certain rostrum whose words you may if you be disposed interpret understand and refute as you please because he merely spoke as he saw a set of impious men to be moved and affected here you plainly discover how much your advice above that the majesty of the judgments of god should be reverenced was from your heart there when we were speaking of the doctrines of the scripture only where there was no need of reverencing things abstruse and hidden because there were no such doctrines you awed us in the most religious terms with the darkness of the curriculum cavern lest we should rush forward with too much curiosity so that by the awe you well-nigh frightened us from reading the scriptures altogether to the reading of which christ and his apostles urge and persuade us as well as you do yourself elsewhere but here where we are come not to the doctrines of the scripture not to the curriculum cavern only but to the very and greatly to be revered secrets of the divine majesty namely why he works thus here as they say you burst open all bars and rush in all but openly blaspheming what indignation against god do you not discover because you cannot see his reason why and his design in this his counsel why do you not here frame as an excuse obscurity and ambiguity why do you not restrain yourself and deter others from prying into these things which god wills should be hidden from us and which he has not delivered to us in the scriptures it is here the hand is to be laid upon the mouth it is here we are to reverence what lies hidden to adore the secret counsels of the divine majesty and to explain with paul who art thou o man that contendest with god romans nine twenty section twenty four who you say will endeavour to amend his life i answer no man no man can for your self amenders without the spirit god regardeth not for they are hypocrites but the elect and those that fear god will be amended by the holy spirit the rest will perish unamended nor does augustine say that the works of none nor that the works of all are crowned but the works of some therefore there will be some who shall amend their lives who will believe you say that he is loved of god i answer no man will believe it no man can but the elect shall believe it the rest shall perish without believing it filled with indignation and blaspheming as you here describe them therefore there will be some who shall believe it and as to your saying that by these doctrines the floodgate of iniquity is thrown open unto men be it so they pertain to that leprosy of evil to be born spoken of before nevertheless by the same doctrines there is thrown open to the elect and to them that fear god a gate unto righteousness an entrance into heaven a way unto god 
but if according to your advice we should refrain from these doctrines and should hide from men this word of god so that each deluded by a false persuasion of salvation should never learn to fear god should never be humbled in order that through this fear he might come to grace and love then indeed we should shut up your floodgate to purpose for in the room of it we should throw open to ourselves and to all wide gates nay yawning chasms and sweeping tides not only unto iniquity but unto the depths of hell thus we should not enter into heaven ourselves and them that are entering in we should hinder what utility therefore you say is there in or necessity for proclaiming such things openly when so many evils seem likely to proceed therefrom i answer it were enough to say god has willed that they should be proclaimed openly but the reason of the divine will is not to be inquired into, but simply to be adored, and the glory to be given unto God, who, since he alone is just and wise, doth evil to no one, and can do nothing rashly or inconsiderately, although it may appear far otherwise unto us. With this answer those that fear God are content, but that, from the abundance of answering matter which I have, I may say a little more than this which might suffice. There are two causes which require such things to be preached. The first is the humbling of our pride, and the knowledge of the grace of God. The second is Christian faith itself. First, God has promised certainly His grace to the humbled, that is, to the self-deploring and despairing. But a man cannot be thoroughly humbled until he comes to know that his salvation is utterly beyond his own powers, counsel, endeavors, will, and works, and absolutely depending on the will counsel pleasure and work of another that is of god only for if as long as he has any persuasion that he can do even the least thing himself towards his own salvation he retain a confidence in himself and do not utterly despair in himself so long he is not humbled before god but he proposes to himself some place some time or some work whereby he may at length attain unto salvation but he who hesitates not to depend wholly upon the good will of god he totally despairs in himself, choosing nothing for himself, but waits for God to work in him, and such an one is the nearest unto grace that he might be saved. These things, therefore, are openly proclaimed for the sake of the elect, that, being by these means humbled and brought down to nothing, they might be saved. The rest resist this humiliation. Nay, they condemn the teaching of self-desperation. They wish to have left a little something, that they may do themselves these secretly remain proud and adversaries to the grace of god this i say is one reason that those who fear god being humbled might know call upon and receive the grace of god the other reason is that faith is in things not seen therefore that there might be room for faith it is necessary that all those things which are believed should be hidden but they are not hidden more deeply than under the contrary of sight sense and experience Thus, when God makes alive, he does it by killing. When he justifies, he does it by bringing in guilty. When he exalts to heaven, he does it by bringing down to hell. As the scripture saith, The Lord killeth and maketh alive. He bringeth down to the grave, and raiseth up. 1 Samuel 2.6 Concerning which there is no need that I should here speak more at large. For those who read my writings are well acquainted with these things. Thus he conceals his eternal mercy and loving-kindness behind his eternal wrath, his righteousness behind apparent iniquity. This is the highest degree of faith, to believe that he is merciful, 
who saves so few and damns so many, to believe him just, who, according to his own will, makes us necessarily damnable, that he may seem, as Erasmus says, to delight in the torments of the miserable, and to be an object of hatred rather than of love. If, therefore, I could by any means comprehend how that same God can be merciful and just, who carries the appearance of so much wrath and iniquity, there would be no need of faith. But now, since that cannot be comprehended, there is room for exercising faith, while such things are preached and openly proclaimed. In the same manner as, while God kills, the faith of life is exercised in death, suffice it to have said thus much upon your preface. In this way we shall more rightly consult, for the benefit of those who dispute upon these paradoxes, than according to your way, whereby you wish to indulge their impiety by silence, and a refraining from saying anything, which is to no profit whatever. For if you believe, or even suppose these things to be true, seeing they are paradoxes of no small moment, such is the insatiable desire of mortals to search into secret things, and the more so the more we desire to keep them secret that by this admonition of yours you will absolutely make them public. For all will now much more desire to know whether these paradoxes be true or not. Thus they will, by your contending zeal, be so roused to inquiry that not one of us ever afforded such a handle for making them known, as you yourself have done by this over-religious and zealous admonition. You would have acted much more prudently had you said nothing at all about being cautious in mentioning these paradoxes if you wished to see your desire accomplished. But since you do not directly deny that they are true, your aim is frustrated. They cannot be concealed, for by their appearance of truth they will draw all men to search into them. Therefore, either deny that they are true altogether, or else hold your own tongue first, if you wish others to hold theirs. Section 25. As to the other paradox you mentioned, that whatever is done by us is not done by free will, but from mere necessity. Let us briefly consider this, lest we should suffer anything most perniciously spoken to pass by unnoticed. Here, then, I observe, that if it be proved that our salvation is apart from our own strength and counsel, and depends on the working of God alone, which I hope I shall clearly prove hereafter, in the course of this discussion, does it not evidently follow that when God is not present with us to work in us, everything that we do is evil, and that we of necessity do those things which are of no avail unto salvation? For if it is not we ourselves, but God only, that works salvation in us, it must follow, whether or no, that we do nothing unto salvation before the working of God in us. But by necessity I do not mean compulsion, but, as they term it, the necessity of immutability, not of compulsion. That is, a man void of the Spirit of God does not evil against his will as by violence, or as if he were taken by the neck and forced to it, in the same way as a thief or cutthroat is dragged to punishment against his will. But he does it spontaneously, and with a desirous willingness, and this willingness and desire of doing evil he cannot by his own power leave off, restrain, or change. But it goes on still desiring and craving. And even if he should be compelled by force to do anything outwardly to the contrary, yet the craving will within remains averse to, and rises in indignation against that which forces or resists it. But it would not rise in indignation if it were changed, and made willing to yield to a constraining power. This is what we mean by the necessity of immutability, 
that the will cannot change itself, nor give itself another bent, but rather the more it is resisted, the more it is irritated to crave, as is manifest from its indignation. This would not be the case if it were free, or had a free will. Ask experience how hardened against all persuasion they are, whose inclinations are fixed upon any one thing. For if they yield at all, they yield through force, or through something attended with greater advantage. They never yield willingly, and if their inclinations be not thus fixed, they let all things pass and go on just as they will. But again, on the other hand, when God works in us, the will, being changed and sweetly breathed on by the Spirit of God, desires and acts not from compulsion, but responsively, from pure willingness, inclination, and accord, so that it cannot be turned another way by anything contrary, nor be compelled or overcome even by the gates of hell. But it still goes on to desire, crave after, and love that which is good, even as before it desired, craved after, and loved that which was evil. This, again, experience proves. How invincible and unshaken are holy men, when, by violence and other oppressions, they are only compelled and irritated the more to crave after good, even as fire is rather fanned into flames than extinguished by the wind, so that neither is there here any willingness or free will to turn itself into another direction, or to desire anything else, while the influence of the Spirit and grace of God remain in the man. In a word, if we be under the God of this world, without the operation and spirit of God, we are led captives by him at his will, as Paul saith, 2 Timothy 2.26, so that we cannot will anything but that which he wills. For he is that strong man armed, who so keepeth his palace, that those whom he holds captive are kept in peace, that they might not cause any motion or feeling against him. Otherwise the kingdom of Satan, being divided against itself, could not stand whereas Christ affirms it does stand. And all this we do willingly and desiringly, according to the nature of will. For if it were forced, it would be no longer will, for compulsion is, so to speak, unwillingness. But if the stronger than he come and overcome him, and take us as his spoils, then through the Spirit we are his servants and captives, which is the royal liberty, that we may desire and do willingly what he wills. Thus the human will is, as it were, a beast between two. If God sit thereon, it wills and goes where God will. As the psalm saith, I am become, as it were, a beast before thee, and I am continually with thee. Psalm 73, 22 and 23. If Satan sit thereon, it wills and goes as Satan will. Nor is it in the power of its own will to choose to which rider it will run, nor which it will seek but the writers themselves contend which shall have and hold it. Section 26. And now, what if I prove from your own words on which you assert the freedom of the will, that there is no such thing as free will at all? What if I should make it manifest that you unknowingly deny that which, with so much policy, you labor to affirm? And if I do not this actually, I vow that I will consider all that I advance in this book against you revoked and all that your diatribe advances against me, and aims at establishing, confirmed. You make the power of free will to be that certain small degree of power which, without the grace of God, is utterly ineffective. Do you not acknowledge this? Now then, I ask and demand of you, if the grace of God be wanting, or if it be taken away from that certain small degree of power, what can it do of itself? 
it is ineffective, you say, and can do nothing of good. Therefore it cannot do what God or His grace wills. And why? Because we have now separated the grace of God from it. And what the grace of God does not, is not good. And hence it follows that free will, without the grace of God, is absolutely not free, but immutably the servant and bondslave of evil, because it cannot turn itself unto good. This being determined, I will allow you to make the power of free will not only a certain small degree of power, but to make it evangelical, if you will, or, if you can, to make it divine, provided that you add to it this doleful appendage, that without the grace of God it is ineffective because then you will at once take from it all power. For what is ineffective power, but plainly no power at all? Therefore, to say that the will is free, and that it has indeed power, but that it is ineffective, is what the sophists call a direct contrariety, as if one should say, free will is that which is not free, or as if one should term fire cold, and earth hot, for if fire had the power of heat, Yea, if the earth of hell, yet if it did not burn or scorch, but were cold and produced cold, I should not call it fire, much less should I term it hot, unless indeed you were to mean an imaginary fire, or a fire represented in a picture. But if we call the power of free will, that by which a man is fitted to be caught by the Spirit, or to be touched by the grace of God, as one created unto eternal life or eternal death may be said to be, this power, that is, fitness, or, as a sophist term it, disposition quality, and passive aptitude, this I also confess. And who does not know that this is not in trees or beasts? For, as they say, heaven was not made for geese. Therefore it stands confirmed, even by your own testimony, that we do all things from necessity, not from free will, seeing that the power of free will is nothing, and neither does nor can do good, without grace, unless you wish efficacy to bear a new signification, to be understood as meaning perfection, that is, that free will can indeed will and begin, but cannot perfect, which I do not believe, and upon this I shall speak more at large hereafter. It now then follows that free will is plainly a divine term, and can be applicable to none but the divine majesty only, for he alone doth, as the psalm sings, what he will in heaven and earth. Psalm 135, 6. Whereas, if it be ascribed unto men, it is not more properly ascribed than the divinity of God himself would be ascribed unto them, which would be the greatest of all sacrilege. Wherefore it becomes theologians to refrain from the use of this term altogether, whenever they wish to speak of human ability, and to leave it to be applied to God only, and, moreover, to take this same term out of the mouths and speech of men, and thus to assert, as it were, for their God, that which belongs to his own sacred and holy name. But if they must, whether or no, give some power to men, let them teach that it is to be called by some other term than free will, especially since we know and clearly see that the people are miserably deceived and seduced by that term, taking and understanding it to signify something far different from that which theologians mean and understand by it in their discussions. For the term free will is far too grand copious and full, by which the people imagine is signified, as the force and nature of the term requires, that power which can freely turn itself as it will, and such a power as is under the influence of and subject to no one, whereas if they knew that it was quite otherwise, 
and that by that term scarcely the least spark or degree of power was signified, and that, utterly ineffective of itself, being the servant and bond-slave of the devil, it would not be at all surprising if they should stone us as mockers and deceivers, who said one thing and meant something quite different, nay, who left it uncertain and unintelligible what we meant. For he who speaks sophistically, the wise man saith, is hated, and especially if he does so in things pertaining to godliness, where eternal salvation is at stake. Since, therefore, we have lost the signification of so grand a term and the thing signified by it, or rather never had them at all, which the Pelagians may heartily wish had been the case, being themselves eluded by this term, why do we so tenaciously hold an empty word to that peril and mockery of the believing people? There is no more wisdom in so doing than there is in kings and potentates retaining or claiming and boasting of empty titles of kingdoms and countries, when they are at the same time mere beggars, and anything but the possessors of those kingdoms and countries. But, however, this is bearable, since they deceive and mock no one thereby, but only feed themselves on vanity without any profit. But here is a peril of salvation, and the most destructive mockery. Who would not laugh at, or rather hold up to hatred, that most untimely innovator of terms, who, contrary to all established use, should attempt to introduce such a mode of speaking as by the term beggar to have understood wealthy, not because such a one has any wealth himself, but because some king may, perchance, give him his wealth? And what if such a one should really do this, not by any figure of speech, as by periphrasis or irony, but in plain serious meaning? In the same way, speaking of one sick unto death, he may wish to be understood as meaning one in perfect health, giving this as his reason, because the one may give the other his health. So also he may, by illiterate idiot, mean most learned, because some other may perchance give him his learning. Of precisely the same nature is this. Man has a free will, for this reason, if perchance God should give him his. By this abuse of the manner of speaking, any one may boast that he has anything, that he is the Lord of heaven and earth, if perchance God should give this unto him. But this is not the way in which theologians should proceed. This is the way of stage-players and public informers. Our words ought to be proper words, pure and sober, and, as Paul saith, sound speech that cannot be condemned. Titus 2, 7-8 But if we do not like to leave out this term altogether, which would be most safe and also most religious, we may nevertheless with a good conscience teach that it be used so far as to allow man a free will, not in respect of those which are above him, but in respect only of those things which are below him. That is, he may be allowed to know that he has, as to his goods and possessions, the right of using, acting, and omitting according to his free will, although at the same time that same free will is overruled by the free will of God alone, just as he pleases. But that Godward, or in things which pertain unto salvation or damnation, he has no free will, but is captive, slave, and servant, either to the will of God or to the will of Satan. Section 27. These observations have I made upon the heads of your preface, which indeed themselves may more properly be said to embrace the whole subject than the following body of the book. But, however, the whole of these observations in reply might have been summed up and made in this one short compendious answer to you. Your preface complains either of the words of God or of the word of men. If of the words of men the whole is written in vain, if of the words of God 
the whole is impious. Therefore it would have saved much trouble if it had been plainly mentioned whether we were disputing concerning the words of God or the words of men. But this perhaps will be handled in the exordium which follows, or in the body of the discussion itself. But the hints which you have thrown together in the conclusion of your preface have no weight whatever, such as your calling my doctrines fables and useless, and saying that Christ crucified should rather be preached after the example of Paul, that wisdom is to be taught among them that are perfect, that the language of Scripture is attempered to the various capacities of hearers, and you are therefore thinking that it should be left to the prudence and charity of the teacher to teach that which may be profitable to his neighbor. All this you advance senselessly, and away from the purpose. For rather do we teach anything but Christ crucified. But Christ crucified brings all these things along with himself, and that wisdom also among them that are perfect. For there is no other wisdom to be taught among Christians than that which is hidden in a mystery. And this belongs to the perfect, and not to the sons of the Jewish and legal generation, who, without faith, glory in their works, as Paul, 1 Corinthians 2, seems to think. Unless by preaching Christ crucified you mean nothing else but calling out these words, Christ is crucified. And as to your observing that God is represented as being angry, in a fury, hating, grieving, pitying, repenting, neither of which nevertheless ever takes place in him, this is only purposely stumbling on plain ground. For these things neither render the scriptures obscure, nor necessary to be attempered to the various capacities of hearers, except that many like to make obscurities where there are none. For these things are no more than grammatical particulars and certain figures of speech, with which even schoolboys are acquainted. But we, in this disputation, are contending not about grammatical figures, but about doctrines of truth. End of section 27